everyone. I'm Vivian Ho, host of Paris Healthcare Playbook Podcast. At Pair, we partner with founders from Idea to Series A, and we're excited to share stories from trailblazing healthcare founders and leaders on how they built a digital health business from zero to one. We're super excited to have Connor, CEO and co-founder of Axel Health. Prior to founding Axel Health, Connor ran product engineering at Enter Medicare and was a software engineer at ZocDoc. He has spent his career dedicated to expanding access to quality healthcare services through innovative care delivery models. Founded in 2020, Axel Health enables any healthcare organization to send health professionals to patients' homes to administer blood draws, vaccines, injections, and other physical services. Axel Health has raised about $3 million, led by Pair VC. Woo! And yeah, let's get started. Thank you so much for joining us today, Connor. Thank you for having me again, Vivian. Okay, so let's talk about the beginning. Um, I like to ask, what is your early vision for Axel Health? What was it literally when you decided to start a company? And even you know, going back to like the name, how did you come up with the name? We want to go to the very day zero. Yeah, day zero. So originally, I came up with Axel Health after I had a negative healthcare experience. I wanted to get a vaccine, but I ended up having to go through a lot of hoops to get it. And I figured that getting it home would be the easiest way to do it. The initial sort of idea was that we would actually go direct to consumer, but we found very quickly that that probably wasn't going to work. And that was for two main reasons. We realized that the business needed demand aggregation and demand density in order to work. And to do that, we needed to have business customers, essentially, rather than trying to acquire each of these users individually, which would have been really difficult. It's sort of like you can think of it as DoorDash, right? DoorDash has many different restaurants on the platform, and that means that they're able to do more trips in a defined area, which increases demand density, which improves unit economics. The second one was that even though companies um, in the direct-to-consumer space have cropped up, especially in mental health, Uh, around things like erectile dysfunction as well, kind of stigmatized topics. The majority of patients still expect for their care to be covered by the premiums they pay. And so going through businesses is another way to be able to accomplish that as well. In terms of the name itself, the name we had originally was not very good. It was based on the name of, of a Roman goddess. Ultimately, we came to Axle Health because it, much like an axle connects two wheels, we connect two sides of the healthcare equation. We connect uh, providers and other people uh, who administer healthcare with those who need healthcare. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I think everyone starts with like a Greek goddess or something <laughs> with some meaning, but yeah. The, the mistake that we made was that it could be pronounced, especially because we speak Latin, it could be pronounced multiple different ways. And the first thing that came up in every meeting that we went into was, so do you say the name this way or that way? And ultimately, we we settled on Axel, which is very easy to say. Everyone gets that right. But there are two spellings. So we fixed one problem, and then a second problem came up. Awesome. I didn't realize you had another name before Axel. I guess for the audience, for those who aren't familiar, can you explain Axel's service offerings and business model to our audience? We offer a broad range of services, from blood draws to vaccines to EKGs. And part of the reason that we're able to offer a broad set of services is through that demand aggregation that I talked about earlier. There are certain services like vaccines, for example, that require things like cold chain storage, data logging, um, setting up, sending data back to the state based on what vaccination was done and for whom. And that there's a big startup cost to that. And you need to make sure that you have sufficient volume in order to do something like that. 
But our specialty remains in doing the software and the operations and logistics that go into making these in-home visits cost-efficient. And you know, to that end, more than half of our team has worked at Uber at one point or another. And obviously, the businesses are not exactly the same, but a lot of those same themes play out, like demand aggregation, demand density, supply chain logistics, things like that. We typically charge on a per-visit basis. Uh, you know, in the past, home health costs have been a bit unpredictable for several reasons, but among them, you know, added mileage fees or extra fees that aren't part of the initial pitch. And so we eliminate all that by having one flat price for a specific service in a specific area. Awesome. That's really helpful to set the context. Um, I guess talking about for those entrepreneurs who are interested in thinking about new ideas in healthcare, how do you test your new idea in the early days? When did you become more confident that Axel is what you wanted to work on full-time and go on to raise or go join YC and raise money? Like I said earlier, it came from directly from a negative healthcare experience where I wanted a vaccine. Normally, when in, in a non-healthcare business, when something like that happens, you create a direct-to-consumer business based on a negative experience you had, and then you go sell that product to people. Um, but in healthcare, obviously, it works a little bit differently because of the alignment of financial incentives, the fact that people don't directly pay for their own healthcare, they pay, pay for it through premiums. So... When I first had the idea, I set it down for a bit because those that alignment of incentives did not exist. But COVID hit after that, and then those incentives started to align. It started to align. So we're supporting the shift to value-based care, which during the pandemic, millions and millions of people didn't want to go into labs and offices. And value-based care is predicated on being able to have hands on a patient and being able to do what needs to be done in the moment to improve that person's care, regardless of how many touch points it takes. And if you can't get those touch points, then of course, value-based kind of falls apart. And over the next five years, though, we're still going to see a trillion more dollars move from fee-for-service to value-based payment arrangements. So we're going to continue to support that as it scales. And then the other piece that COVID really accelerated was decentralized clinical trials. As Again, as patients didn't want to go onto sites, it ended up being that pharma companies, biotech companies, CROs needed to look for alternatives. And one way to do that is by going in home, making the home a trial site, essentially. And what they realized is actually that it improves retention because people don't have to go to a site. It improves diversity because it can be done outside of hours. And then you also have a reduction in costs as well, because trial sites tend to be very expensive. The average trial participant actually drives about 25 or 30 miles to a trial. So this is a big step up. We were very confident at that point that we wanted to do something in in-home care. So we were committed to doing that. And it was just about finding that right of alignment of incentives, which we ultimately did. Awesome. And talking about getting your first pilot or a customer to test the product itself, can you talk about, given you know we're still in the middle of a pandemic, but back then a little bit more lost, what was the impact of the pandemic on your business? The pandemic was critical to the creation of our business. The, like I mentioned with the alignment of incentives, as people started not to seek care, we were able to fill that gap. And then ultimately, customers recognized that that's potentially a better way to do it, regardless of the pandemic. We actually started with COVID testing. And we moved away from that fairly quickly, but that was also a, a wedge into the market that allowed us to quickly build a product, 
to get revenue, which is super important for momentum and being able to feed those dollars back into the business. So COVID was critical to really get the company off the ground. That's super helpful. I guess talking about wedges, when you see companies thinking about, okay, how can we get our first dollar paid? Do you think that going your route was the best route possible? Or how would you give advice to someone who's looking for a wedge or determining what is their right wedge? I think that having industry experience is definitely helpful because it's the type of thing where you can uh, see kind of small shifts in the industry that may end up actually having really large impacts. So certainly industry experience is very helpful. And, and that's something that we've leaned into given, given our past experiences. Um, the other thing that you can do is you can talk to a lot of customers, right? And in healthcare, especially, it's nice to have a little bit of experience to lend yourself credibility when you go into those conversations. But there is a world where you can just talk to as many prospective customers, gather feedback on what they think about the industry, what the problems they're facing are, and then ultimately how you may be able to solve those. So it's not to say that you need industry experience. That part is just helpful. That's really interesting. Okay, awesome. Let's talk about what was it like you know, with your first pilot specifically, what were the challenges that you faced there and how did you overcome it? One of the most important things for a first pilot especially is that you want to make sure that the product that you're building for them is something that is going to be useful for other prospective customers as well. Because it would be very easy otherwise for you to fall into being that first pilot's dev shop rather than building a product that's applicable elsewhere, especially because you have an N of one at that point and you want to make that customer very happy because you want to turn it into a full rollout. But at the same time, you need to remember that there are other prospective customers in the space who may not need the features that you're going to end up building for this pilot. This is also a place where industry experience is really helpful to be able to pattern match and say, I think that might be useful for other customers, or I think that might not be useful. And then being able to stack rank what you want to build based on that applicability. All the while, of course, ensuring that you keep that first pilot customer very, very happy so that they ultimately roll out with you. Awesome. That's really useful advice. And you know, as you scale to different types of customers from COVID to non-COVID to selling across clinical trials and payers and providers. How do you think about company positioning when you're selling to these different customer types with different needs, assuming that they all see themselves as separate different parts of the industry? Each customer type has a pitch that resonates with it. In the case of value-based care, it might be about improving quality ratings. In the case of life sciences, it may be about improving retention and trial Or in the case of a provider, it may be about driving incremental revenue for patients who might have skipped a visit otherwise. And so the collateral changes, the value proposition that you pitch changes. But for us, the underlying core competencies that we have around the software and the operations that make these in-home visits efficient remains the same. If you're doing a blood draw for one of these segments versus another or an EKG for one versus another, that piece is the same. The only part that really differs is the value proposition that you're pitching during that actual meeting. Yeah, I'd love to talk about a specific example with a customer in clinical trials, for example, would be really useful to hear how you transition from testing with them on a pilot phase to a full contract. Yeah, so one of our customers in the in the trial space, CureBase, for example, we started initially on a very, very small project with them. 
And then ultimately over time, they've added more and more trials as we've been able to prove that we're able to handle that level of workload. And so, again, that's the type of thing where you do need to build up that credibility. And, you know, our, our customer, our net revenue retention um, is really high because as we are able to prove that credibility, we end up then expanding with that customer further. And it can be we expand with them in more markets. It can be we expand with them on new services. So there are several different ways we can do it. But building that credibility to take it from one stage to the next is really important. Awesome. And when you expand to different states, you know, how easy is it to sort of start a new area where you've never been before for Axel? Given the recruitment process that we have in place, it's kind of templated at this point. So we're able to spin up new markets fairly quickly based on the learnings that we've had, automating some of the things that we can. And then the things that remain manual, we're very quick at because we've done them many times before. Got it. Wow. Okay. So what is your vision for Axel in five years? I'm curious, you know, where can this really go in your mind? In five years, we want to be doing every healthcare visit in home. And that is obviously a lot. But based on what we've seen in the market so far, based on the breadth of interest that we've seen, everyone from the smallest providers to the largest health systems and payers, I think it's a place that we can get to based on what we've done so far in building the groundwork when it comes to those operational processes and the software to be able to do this at scale. Awesome. I'm excited for all my doctors come to my door. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's really interesting. I think there's a lot of different companies expanding in at-home health testing, you know, these test kits. And I think for Axel to sort of be the platform that ties all these together would be amazing. And I guess for the playbook part of the healthcare playbook podcast, I like to dive into the how-tos. So scaling, you know, from that one customer to now that you have more than a dozen customers with an aggregate market cap of over 15 billion. Let's talk through the process and also figure out what are lessons you have learned through developing those relationships and expanding on those contracts. The last time you and I spoke, we only had one customer. So it's definitely been a good 10 months or so. I think that for these types of relationships, it is super helpful to have a warm intro, especially in healthcare you want that level of credibility. You don't necessarily have a track record as a business to that point. So landing that first customer, I really like to do it with a warm intro. And you can't always get a warm intro, so you should cold outbound if you need to, but the process will be much easier if you have that warm intro. Because you also have to think about not just from the credibility standpoint that it provides you, but also the fact that it's a filtering mechanism for prospective customers. Especially the larger the company, the more inbound they get and the more they will ignore it without that kind of seal of approval of someone they know. So that part's really important. And then you also want to tease out why a prospective customer who's shown interest in your product wants to use it. Because you need to make sure that not only is it a good fit for them, not only is your product a good fit for them, but in the reverse direction, you want to make sure that this is a company that you'll be able to continue to grow with as they grow it as well. And then for the pilot, you know, I think that the, the simplest thing you can do for a first pilot is the thing that you should do because you have several obstacles to clear. The larger the company is, it means that you're going to need an internal champion. That internal champion is going to need to pitch their bosses. And so you need to make it really easy for them to do that. So for us, the way that looks is starting with one service 
in one geography, making it low risk financially so that it's easy for them to say yes. And then you also want the pilot to have success criteria because you want to know what it takes to turn that into a full contract, whether that be financial or satisfaction based. So for us, that might mean having a patient MPS above 80, or it might mean uh, making the company a certain amount of money. And that's also your guide on what's important to them, which helps you prioritize what features you should build during the pilot as well to keep them happy. When you talk about Axel specifically, and this is really good advice for any healthcare company, um, how did you define sort of what the KPIs were for you? And also, how did you figure out what is the timeline? Is it, you know, do you have three months to see if this pilot works? How do you design the timeline as well? It's critical to do your research before you approach that customer that you want to pilot with to figure out what it is that they want out of it. So if they want uh, increased revenue, then you may build features or make changes that allow for that. So in, in the case of Axel, for example, that means we might prioritize a routing algorithm that allows a health professional to see more patients in any given day. If they are really intent on patient NPS and the patient experience, you might prioritize making the scheduling flow really easy or look really nice. So understanding that is not only important for the success of the pilot overall, but specifically how you can contribute as a company to the success of that pilot. That's really helpful. And talking about you, you serve more than a dozen customers and your team isn't that big and it's mostly been Fatner sales. So I'm curious, how do you scale yourselves to when you get to more than five customers, you aren't creating a product for each of them, right? So how do you make sure your product is scalable until the point where you can even sell it to 100 customers? One of the things that we do to help with this is we essentially stack rank features that customers request from us based on how disruptive it is to their workflow that that feature does not exist. Again, this is something where it also helps have industry experience because you can't necessarily look at a feature and decide whether it's going to be useful for that customer without additional context. So for us, we stack rank that. And then based on how disruptive it would be to their workflow, if that didn't exist, we build that feature. This is something that has allowed us with a very small team to make a very full featured product and to serve more than a dozen customers. At the same time, there are times when that can backfire as well. And actually one instance, we had a customer who was one of our early customers, not sending us very much volume. And so as we started to grow really, really quickly, we kind of lost track of that customer for a little bit. We noticed that one month their visits, their visit volume wasn't quite what we expected it to be. And then the month after that, we noticed it again and, and decided that there was a pattern behind this. And so we immediately set up a conversation with the customer that week and asked them to take us through their workflow and kind of what had happened that made it so that their visit volume wasn't what we expected it to be. They took us through the workflow and we looked at it and we're like, oh, yeah, that sucks. No wonder you, you, the visit volume wasn't as high as we expected it to be because we had guessed at how they were using the product. And it's really important. And again, experience helps with this, but it's clearly not the end all be all to not guess how your customer is using your product because they will use it in ways that you didn't expect. And so as soon as we, we heard that, we immediately made the feature. It took about four dev hours. It wasn't very much work. And now their visit volume is where we expect it to be. So it's super important to listen to your customer in those contexts and not guess at what they want. Yeah, that's really 
helpful in the early days and kind of at this point where you have so many customers and people you know having great experiences do you feel like there was a threshold that you had to overcome to get to more meetings like now that you have a couple customers you can say that in customer meetings or cold emails do you feel like it's really exponentialized your growth in that sense yeah there are several pieces to that i think First of all, I think we really started to feel that when we closed our first non-COVID customer. Even as we were raising our seed round, you know, a little under a year ago, there were questions about whether our business model was applicable outside of the confines of a pandemic. And of course, we thought that the answer to that question was yes and that it was obvious, but we still received pushback on that. And we closed our first non-COVID customer shortly after we raised our seed round. And that really gave us the confidence to say, this has a lot of broad appeal, again, outside the confines of a pandemic, which meant that we were then able to start selling this to other customers with collateral that we developed with this initial, uh, both the initial COVID customer and then the initial non-COVID customer. And that really obviously helps you with momentum. When you can say that you have multiple customers, you can create case studies from them, and you can create that momentum in a sales process things really start to lock into place. Awesome. I'm excited for the next growth level for Axel. Okay, let's shift to sort of hiring and building a team since we're sort of on this growth topic. What are the most important lessons in hiring your first hire? Given that, you know, seed startups, you only have two or three people in the, in the early days and you have the opportunity to grow maybe five or 10 more people, but you have to really pick. Who do you pick as your first hire and what is your advice on that process? They say that patience is a virtue. And I think that in making your first hire at a startup, that is incredibly true. It's especially hard at a startup because there is more work than you possibly know what to do with. You could hire a hundred people and there wouldn't be enough people. You're desperate to find someone, but at the same time, you need to keep in mind that when you hire that first hire, they are actually going to be a third of your team. If Google hires one mediocre person, then that's one out of 100,000. If you hire a mediocre person as your first hire, that is one out of three. And it would really be a drag on the team. It would be a drag on morale. So it is super important to be patient and get those first hires right. The other part, though, is that there's no silver bullet to it. I think that if someone can come up with an idea that has startups being able to recruit great candidates within a few weeks, that that's a billion dollar company, but it's something that we've seen doesn't exist and that you just need to pound the pavement. You need to use LinkedIn. You need to go to conferences and putting in the work is really the only way that you're going to get that first hire, right? Yeah, for sure. It's a lot of work. <laughs> and I'm curious, you know, when you think about startup hires, since you've been working most of your lifetime in, in smaller company startups, do you care more about the years of experience or more on the desire to grow or energy? Like what are things that you prioritize? Because you can, you know, hire someone who has 20 years of experience, or you would hire someone who's eager to grow their resume and join an early stage startup. So I'm curious, like what kind of what type of person you look for? It's a little bit of a cop-out, but I you when you're creating a team, you need both in much the same way that. A sports team has a mix of experienced and inexperienced players. Experience is useful, especially in an industry like healthcare, because there are a lot of gotchas and someone who's been there and done it is able to point those out. At the same time, you also want people 
who are hungry and ready to learn because they can fit into many different slots. They can learn new skills. And that's the type of person who can grow with you from that seed stage to IPO. So they're both ultimately important in having a successful team. And and we have both. Awesome. That's really helpful. And uh, speaking of roles, what types of roles would you be hiring for? We'd love to hear how you're thinking about expanding that team right now. If anyone listening is interested in operations, engineering, or sales, then I would love to chat with you. Awesome. Hopefully they have all three. No. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to wrap up to ask you any lessons on entrepreneurship you would share with aspiring founders. I mentioned this the last time we spoke, but it's worth mentioning again. Ensure that your offering aligns with whoever is actually paying for the care. Too many companies enter the space with a value proposition that isn't aligned with their customer. So for example, for many companies, patient convenience alone is insufficient. How does that convenience not only benefit the patient, but benefit who's paying for the care itself? It's the way that healthcare is, so it's really unavoidable, but it's definitely something that you have to take into account when you're starting a company in healthcare. Thank you. Yeah, I feel like starting in healthcare means you have to work with at least three stakeholders, if not five or more. So it's definitely interesting to think about it in in this lens. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us on the Pair Healthcare Playbook. Um, Really enjoyed having you and hearing updates. Thanks so much, Vivian. Look forward to next time.